Could it be that the places and people we know to be dangerous, scary, and different are only that way because we haven't met them or visited them yet? I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using their unique strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. And that has gained them a top reputation for tough, reliable gear. www.greenchiliadv.com That's www.greenchiliadv.com Hi, I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Dustin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed Mark. Glenn Hedstead. Dr. Gregor W. Frazee. Barr. Michelle Lanfield. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schmutz. Brett Tart. Zoe Cano. Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins. Joe Ross. Jeremy Craker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Wick. Seth Simon. Elizabeth Martin. I'm Carol DeVell, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. And the Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll fill your flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. It's made in the USA, and it comes with a lifetime warranty. www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. The MotoBreeze chain oiler is powered by wind pressure that automatically adjusts for speed. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers oil to your chain with a felt pad that's mounted on your swing arm, which eliminates the problems of exposed nozzles near your sprockets. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets and forget about the messy spray oil. www.motobreeze.com. That's two I's in there. www.motobreeze.com. Fear of traveling to some countries is often instilled in us by media or maybe stories from people who haven't been there, or maybe they're just reiterating stories from other people that they've heard. And let's face it, humans are attracted to stories of tragedy and problems. That's the type of things we repeat. But are we missing out on discovering these different cultures and people because of our fears? Perhaps riding out of our comfort zone and into these places will help make us see things differently and possibly change the way we think. think that um, traveling and doing the small scale connecting with people that are different from you can make a huge difference you know because you know now I feel totally different about Iranian people and about Muslims and Islam and everything it really did change my whole kind of world view really and and maybe you know I met people that might have been anti-British or anti-Western and maybe they met me and thought oh they're not so bad and the next time someone says something horrible about it in Britain, they might think of me and think, oh, she was OK, you know. And You know, I do think those those real life connections can sort of filter upwards. So so I'm all of I, I think, you know, motorcycle travel has quite a big part to play in in 
you know, diplomacy. <laughs> And that's Lois Price. She's one of those people that will cross into the unknown to experience culture and people firsthand. Great. So I'm Lois Price. Um, I live in London, England, uh, and I'm a travel writer and journalist and travel around on a motorcycle quite a lot. <laughs> Lois, great to have you back on Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you. It's great to be back. Now, you used to work at the BBC, but I, I guess that's a previous life for you now. Oh, very much a previous life, yeah. Um, I worked at the BBC uh, in the sort of early 2000s. Uh, my background is in sort of music industry, record labels and stuff. And so I ended up at the BBC and I was in my late 20s and I thought, oh, I can't sit in an office for the rest of my life. So I um, had just learned to ride a motorcycle, really. I'd only been riding maybe about a year or so. Uh, but that combination of a boring office job and a, and a motorcycle license sort of inspired me to to jack it all in and hit the road. So I, I uh, rode from Alaska to the bottom of South America, Tierra del Fuego, on a Yamaha XT225. And that out of that came uh, my first book, which was called Lois on the Loose, and, and really an entire new career and life for me, really, <laughs> which is not what I expected. So here I am. <laughs> but you must have had some sort of adventure in you from the start because the stuff you do is kind of out there for most people. Um, yeah, I think I'm a, uh, I suppose I've always been up for a, a challenge and having a crack at things. And um, I've, I was fortunate to grow up with sort of in, in that kind of free range of free range parenting, I think they call it these days. You know, I had parents that never warned me that anything was dangerous or that I shouldn't climb trees or play in rivers and that kind of stuff. So <laughs> so it's always been um, normal to me to sort of just get out there and, and have a go at stuff. And and, um, and so I think really with the bike travel thing, I just thought it looked like good fun. And I, and I, I use logic, really. I thought, well, if other people can do it, I can do it. So it wasn't like I didn't feel like I was doing something particularly big and brave and, and scary. I just thought it looks like a laugh. Let's have a go. Well, your latest book is called Revolutionary Ride. It's about a trip or I guess um, really it's about a few trips that you did to Iran. But one in particular, I, I want to talk about how you got to this place. You ended up finding a note on your motorcycle. Can you tell us what started all this? <laughs> yeah, that was kind of weird. So, um, yeah, so I rode, uh, uh, like I said, through the Americas. And then a few years later, I rode from London to Cape Town. Um, through, through the length of Africa and I, and I still had that bike this is in 2011 I was still riding that bike around I'd done the trip like in 2006-7 but I was using that bike to get around London so it looked pretty battered as you can imagine a bike that's travelled the length of Africa across you know the Sahara Desert and the Congo and Angola would look big tank and you know sheepskin on the seat and stickers all over it and pretty knackered really um, and I happened to be in London and parked up near the, the Iranian embassy in, in central London, which was recently closed just, you know, literally a few days before because there'd been this big diplomatic spat between Britain and Iran and they'd set the British embassy on fire in Tehran and petrol bombed it and whatnot uh, in a protest over sanctions. And then they'd thrown us out and we'd thrown them out. And it was the usual sort of tit for tat diplomatic hoo-ha. So our sort of relations, between, you know, Anglo-Iranian relations were at an all-time low the, the, the embassy was kind of closed and heavily guarded and I, my bike was just parked up nearby and when I came back from whatever I was doing I found a note on it and 
it's not that unusual because you know obviously like in our little world of adventure riding we sort of recognize each other's bikes and bikes get quite personalized don't they you know so it's like oh that's so-and-so's bike so I thought it must be someone who knew me but it wasn't because the note was addressed to dear sir so obviously that wasn't <laughs> intended for me personally and it basically said in quite you know bad english you know nice bike you know uh, have you ever been to iran on it um it, it's not what you think don't believe what you hear in the news because there was obviously masses of headlines about what was going on and Iran was being painted as this you know terrifying scary place and people talking about war and you know so and and he said you know and at the end it said we're not terrorists lots of exclamation marks and and suggested I went to visit uh, Iran on my bike and, and to uh, the city of Shiraz which was this person's hometown so it's just a regular guy I, I don't know if he was Iranian from Iran li- living here or visiting but his name was Habib, and I thought, well, that's quite a funny thing to do, but quite sweet, you know, and I didn't really think anything more of it. I mean, I should say, once I got to Iran and, and I was inundated with people sort of saying, what do you think of Iran? And, you know, and trying to make sure that I had a good time. And and, and that mantra of we're not terrorists, we're not terrorists was kind of this thing that I heard all the time. It sort of made sense. I realised that Iranians are very distressed at how their country's viewed um, and, and sort of very keen to to make amends for that and and so this the note kind of all made per, perfect sense once i got there but when i received it i just thought it was a bit odd and i had to admit that the idea of riding to iran on my own was quite scary and i thought well why is it scary you know and i thought about the things that had scared me in the past and then the reality of them like going to places like say congo or angola or nicaragua you know el salvador colombia places that people warned me against but when you get to them you realize that the reality is very different and I thought, well, maybe Iran's the same, but it did scare me because obviously we're sort of fed this anti-Iran message, really, in Britain particularly, for a few years, decades, really. And, and there's a general anti-Islam, anti-Muslim sentiment as well that, that sort of seeps into our consciousness, whether we like it or not. So I thought, well, if I'm scared, it's just because I don't really know anything and I'm ignorant. So I should go and find out for myself, really. And that's what spurs you on. I mean, because sometimes fear is is uh, is a good thing. I mean, you know, the fear of you're talking about mm. you know the the free range parenting, the the fear of uh, fast moving water or something. I mean, you could jump in and find out that oh wow, <laughs> this is really dangerous. <laughs> what gave you the doubt that that wasn't the case? Um, a few things. One, uh, the few people that I knew that had been to Iran, and there's only maybe a couple of them really raved about it in a way that sort of people don't often rave about but you know really really said how wonderful it was and how lovely the people were and i found that quite interesting and i and i knew one or two iranian people that live i mean they you know anglo-iranian so they're, they're maybe born there but have lived in england and and um and so i talked to them a bit about it and you know it's difficult because they were sort of wary of it as well because you know iran it's you know the government of iran is it's a problem really not not the people as such and and even Iranians abroad are scared of going to Iran, you know. So, so I got intrigued, really. And I'd been to other Muslim countries and I'd found, you know, them should be very different from, you know, like what we hear on the news, really, and the kind of images that, that are portrayed. Um, so I thought, well, as usual, I just thought I'd give it a punt. So, you know. I knew, I knew from my previous trips, you simply cannot just make your mind up at home. You can only know by going yourself. But even the thought of going there with, with so little information and the fact that you have to get a visa to go there, the embassy is closed. What was that like? 
oh, it was a colossal pain. <laughs> and actually, I mean, it was quite bizarre. There's no embassy, no consular service, but you can still... You could still then in 2013 apply for a visa through it. I used a visa agency, which makes it a lot easier. But it was really odd. And they asked me lots of strange questions. They're like, why am I going? And, and you know, what odd, odd things about my job? And what do my what did my dad do for a living? And all this kind of weird thing. Um, and I, you know, made up a load of lies, obviously. And then <laughs> they, <laughs> they refused. First of all, they sort of, they didn't exactly refuse, but they came back with more questions. And then eventually they they granted me a visa, but on the proviso that I didn't travel by motorcycle or in fact by any, not by my own transport. So I was allowed in, but I had to fly in and use public transport. And I guess that's because it's sort of easier to keep an eye on people if they're using, you know, flights and, and trains and buses and stuff. So and possibly because I was a female riding a motorcycle and Iranian women are not allowed to ride motorcycles. So it's kind of, anyway, who knows? They never give a reason. They just make it up as they go along. So I was really annoyed. And I said to the visa lady that was organising it, my agent, I said, oh, no, I've got to go on my bike because that's kind of what I do, you know. <laughs> and that's how I like to see the world and meet people. And it's sort of, you know, important for me to do it that way. Uh, and she said, oh, look, they're not going to have a clue when you turn up whether you're allowed in on a bike or not. They just make this stuff up as they go along. You should just go anyway. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, you know, this is official. <laughs> she said, like, I can't tell you that. I, you know, I can't put that in writing. But if, if I were you, I would just turn up and, and wing it at the border. And, you know, they don't write this stuff on your visa. There's no like official, you know, message that sort of filters down to the border guards. She said, if you're worried about it, you could just get on the train in Turkey and put your bike in the in the van and the train. Or So I did that in the end. I went through Turkey. I rode through Turkey and then I got on, on a train in Ankara, the capital of Turkey. And I put my bike on the train and it's called the Trans-Asia Express and it goes from into Istanbul to Tehran. Uh, and so I got on in Turkey and I got off just over the border in Iran. And sure enough, I just wheeled the bike off and I did all the customs paperwork and everything. I wheeled it off and they just let me go. And I just rode off, you know, and uh, freewheeling around it. So that was amazing. And then, I mean, that's not possible anymore. They've changed all the visa rules. So now Britain, Britain and Americans and Canadians actually can't get in without a guide or without being part of the tour. But I was one of the last few people to get in, uh, certainly the last few Brits to get in uh, as a sort of, you know, free moving, independent traveling overland rider. So I'm very, very fortunate that I went when I did. You sort of chuckled a few minutes ago when I said about how you, you seem to do things that are off the wall, but here you're going into a country that you've been told nothing but bad things about. You've, matter of fact, it's in our, in our culture that it's a scary country to go to. You lied on your visa mm. application to get in, and then you smuggle a motorcycle in, and you're going in by yourself. That's <laughs> out there, Lois. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, you're, when, you're one when of you, few. When you put it like that, you get, you're making me worried. <laughs> no, I think what it is, I am, I, I'm not being um, like uh, flippant about this. You know, I was, I was nervous. I was scared. And, you know, but it's more like, I don't think it's sort of bravery or anything. It's more optimism. I just really believe that everything works out okay. And it, and honestly, it does. So if you sort of believe that, you just do things and then they're fine. <laughs> I know it sounds quite simplistic, but well, that is actually my sort of empirical evidence taken from my life. But you've had doubts as well. I mean, you said in the book that even oh, even yeah. preparing, even when you're doing the visa, sometimes at night you're secretly hoping that the visa is yeah. refused, right? 
about that six kind of what's fake to, to, to intervene and take over. Oh, sorry, you're not allowed into Iran. And then you sort of breathe this sigh of relief. But then you might be kind of secretly uh, relieved immediately. But then you might be like, oh, damn, I really wish I'd gone to Iran. You know, so I sort of like to put things in the hand of fate in that way. So, you know, if you try and make it happen and it does happen, then it's like, OK, let's do this. You know, let's go for it. So, um, and, I, I'm, you know, again, it's sort of like, Using rational thought, it's like, well, other people have been to Iran on the most part. You know, I knew other Westerners had been and, and, and been welcomed, and I knew other women had travelled there. Not, I didn't know any personally, but I knew of, of them. And So I thought, okay, well, again, it's a bit like when I did my first trip, I was like, well, if they can do it, I can do it, you know. And, it's, and I think it's always good to remember that these countries are just full of other human beings having to go about their business and travel around and eat and sleep and you know, uh, so sort of, there's no reason why you can't go there and do the same thing, really. And and what did you find in like in the first little bit, you know, the first few hours sort of a thing? That's that's when everything I think it would be the most tense, where you really don't know what to expect. What was your first experience when when you got on that train with the people who were heading back home? Yeah, it was really interesting because it was mostly Iranians going back from Turkey. A lot of Iranians go to Turkey on holiday, um, so I was. It was amazing, actually. Um, I was just completely sort of taken into this social world of this three-day train journey because he was sleeping in little compartments and everything. So, so I was sharing this cabin with this Iranian um, woman and her son, and and they just fed me basically. <laughs> you know, they just sort of looked after me, and and everywhere I went, people would talk to me and and, and invite me to share food with them, and. It was amazing, and they were so friendly, and you know they they you know gave me Iranian money, and they gave me all their phone numbers, and they wrote me pre- poems and prayers, <laughs> crazy stuff, you know. And I, and by the end of the journey, you know, they all got off the train to wave me goodbye, and they were showing me how to put my headscarf on, and gave me you know addresses and contacts throughout the country in case I needed help here and there, and. And I was amazed because, you know, I have experienced a lot of hospitality, as you can imagine, on my travels in, in all sorts of countries, but nothing like this. But but I wasn't really sure because these people were actually, they were like religious dissidents. They're part of a, a religious um, uh, sect called the Baha'i, and they're actually persecuted in Iran. So I thought, well, maybe these people are like extra nice because they're sort of persecuted and they're not really like the rest of the Iranian people. So I wasn't quite sure if I was getting a skewed version. But really, it it wasn't anything to do with that. I I mean, I experienced that sort of level of unconditional hospitality throughout the country. And from, most interestingly, from all types of people, because the other thing I thought was, well, maybe it's sort of educated middle class, um, you know, sort of urban elite type people that speak English and would 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 welcome me and be more westernized and stuff. But actually, I found that that sort of hospitality is ingrained in the culture, whether that you're male or female or old or young or rich or poor. It really is universal, and that was quite striking to me. So, um, and that was really one of the loveliest things. I mean, when I first arrived, it wasn't very welcoming because my first experience, of course, was the police and the immigration, and I was fingerprinted and put onto the Interpol database and taken to a police station and I really was scared then like oh my god you know because you do hear these stories of, of uh, tourists getting um, arrested in a while well, well they took you off the train didn't they they stopped the train they took you yeah, off exactly yeah they took me off the train and took me to the police station and I was like oh shit I'm not I'm never going you know I'm, ne- I'm never going to be England again I'm going to you know spend the rest of my years languishing in Iranian jail or whatever 
because that has, you know, people have been arrested on thinking they're spies. And and I did realise that, you know, my, my brushes with the authorities in Iran, with the police or the or the Revolutionary Guard or whatever, the, the level of paranoia is is incredible. You know, they really think that, arrest, that if you're there, you must be up to no good. They don't really understand the concept of, certainly not of sort of independent overland travel. So they, they didn't really understand. I was kind of just there for a road trip, essentially. So I was treated with quite a lot of suspicion by the police. Um, but then once I, you know, I had all my paperwork in order. So once I sort of got through, then I kind of got out on the road. And then I was sort of being run off the road by people trying to feed me the whole time and take photos of me and, you know. Well, there was a part where you, you did get, uh, you had somebody following you for a time and it was at night, You were, it was getting late and um, you end up meeting with these people. And that's one thing that somebody pointed out to you in that conversation was that the governments have made the people so paranoid of each other. You know, when he was referring to you being from the UK and the Iranians being paranoid of you. Exactly. This is the, the big realisation, and it happened quite early on, really, is this sort of huge gulf between the Iranian people and the Iranian government and, and this paranoia that has been, it's just, you know, I don't know, it's just fed to them over the years, obviously, since 40, nearly 40 years since the revolution. Um, and, and we've had the same thing, you know, we're fed anti-Iran sentiments and they're dehumanised and demonised in England. So, and then you put these people together and they're looking at me out of their car thinking, who's that foreigner on the bike? What are they, what they're up, what are they up to? And I'm looking at these people following me in a car thinking, oh my God, this must be like the militia or the, the Revolutionary Guard or the some, you know, some angry Ayatollahs that have come to, you know, throw me out of the country or something. And then, of course, we find out that we're all just, you know, normal people just trying to enjoy the getting out into countryside and having a few drinks and and we sort of just partied together on a totally normal level and within an hour we were laughing about how paranoid we'd been to with about each other but it really brought home to me the the the, the huge gulf between the iranian government and the leaders and the ayatollahs and the sort of the religious hardliners and the people that are in charge and then there's the population of Iran who don't feel that they're represented by all those hardliners and they're very keen to sort of make that that clear to me. And, uh, and it sounds sort of obvious when you say it now, because I think, well, I'd be horrified if someone came to England and thought that I was represented by, by our prime minister, Theresa May, you know. So why would I think that some random Iranian guy is like the Ayatollah? You know, it's, it, it doesn't make sense. But... I think it's just that's how we've been sort of fed to believe, to, to view Iran and Iranians as sort of one big homogenous, you know, blob of evil rather than lots of individuals with their own um, grievances against their leaders, really. You know, it, I, we've talked before on the show about the differences, you know, how, how it's governments really who, who sort of go at each other and create all kinds of problems and the people are, are very common around the world. I mean, want basically the same things. I mean, there's definitely cultural differences, but I, I think you'd pointed out, though, with your trips and your understanding uh, of Iran is that it seems that there's that that's a huge gulf between the two that you don't see anywhere else, probably. I think it's the biggest example of that gulf that I've ever experienced. Um, I mean, obviously, there are there are a, a small faction of, of Iranians that believe in the revolution entirely and are totally hardline Islamists, and they and they they're still you know part of that movement. But you know, there's been this huge surge of youth. There's a lot of you know most of the Iranian population are young and were born 
into the into the Islamic Republic. So they didn't actually vote for it as their parents did. So they're kind of grown up with it and they resent it a lot. Uh, and a lot of people that voted for it because they thought it was going to be the future and get them away from the, you know, get rid of the Shah and all of the inequities and the brutality of his secret police and all that stuff that were upsetting the Iranians in the 70s. They thought the Islamic Republic would be the answer to that. And they've all become bitterly disappointed because almost immediately, you know, the promises were broken and it didn't turn out. And it, and it turned into just another regime of, of, you know, control and brutality or even worse probably than under the Shah. So, um, so you've got these kind of disillusioned revolutionaries and then all the kids that they've had because there was a kind of encouragement to breed by, by Khomeini in the 80s. And then they've all grown up thinking, you know, having sort of some access to the Internet and realising that there's another world out there that they want to be part of and resenting all the restrictions of the Islamic Republic, of which there are, you know, many, and they're awful. Uh, and so you've got this, yeah, this enormous amount of people that are just, like, so frustrated and really desperate to connect with the outside world and really keen to show a different side of Iran, and that's really what came across the most. People would be very quick to tell me that they, you know, that they don't like the government and they, that, we, that they shouldn't be judged on that, and... And and they're actually a very sophisticated nation, highly educated, you know, and 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 very switched on and open-minded. And you know, I wasn't expecting that at all. And the other thing that surprised me was, um, you know, it doesn't feel like a very religious country. And I've been to other Islamic countries where people are praying five times a day in the street and all that kind of thing. And it's not like that in Iran at all. They they're very subversive actually, because their whole lives are about subverting, you know, all the rules. So they've got become very good at that, and they almost sort of take a pleasure in sort of what they can get away with and being a bit naughty. And they're quite cheeky, and their sense of humour is, is quite cheeky, and it's like almost quite British actually. So I felt very at home amongst these people because they kind of like had this subversive sense of humour, which is quite Monty Python esque. <laughs> <laughs> they sort of muck about and it's quite silly, and I was like, oh, I feel very very comfortable amongst that. You know, they were not. It's not a serious place. And when I think of Iran now, the first thing I think of is fun. You know. The, it's a fun country and they're fun people to be around. And that is certainly not what I expected. You know, I didn't go there thinking this is going to be fun. You know, I thought it might be interesting or challenging, or, but definitely not fun. So that was a very nice surprise. I think I was surprised most by what you're describing. The people are like themselves, you know, that they, they sort of live these normal lives, that they like a lot of the same things that everybody in the Western world likes. I, I think a, a, a good story of that is when you first got there and you went to the bazaar and you ended up meeting a family and having lunch with them. Can you tell that? Yeah, that was lovely. I mean, it, it's quite common to, you know, to be sort of invited to eat with people. Uh, and sharing food is a big part of the culture. So I was in a restaurant on my own and they and the family came in and just said, oh, come and join us. You know, it's a t- totally natural thing. And so I thought, right, great. I'll, I'll ask them lots of questions because I'd only just arrived and they spoke quite good English and stuff. So um, uh, and the main thing they said, you know, the most important thing you need to know about Iran, Iranians is never call an Iranian an Arab. <laughs> this is like <laughs> the biggest insult you can say, you know. And, and again, you know, and I mean, obviously, I knew that Iranians are not Arabs and they're Persians, and you know, but but often people don't know that they think that in Iran people speak Arabic, and you know, so the level of kind of information that we get in in the West is, you know, it's quite limited. So, so that's that was a big thing, uh, and um, yeah, they were just. Um, very excited about the new iPhone 5 that was coming out. And, I know, um, that's something I didn't expect to, to hear at all. Like, <laughs> we're, I think you said the daughter leaned over and said something about the new iPhone 5's coming out. It's like, what, really? 
yeah and it was like yeah well we get that in we get that from dubai you know they sort of you know luxury goods come in through dubai and and, and they were explaining to me how coca-cola is kind of banned but somehow manufactured or sneaked in under license or and and what i found then and i heard this again and again actually it's this and this this almost like reminded me of america this sort of can-do attitude they would say you can do anything in iran you can get anything in iran you know there was this just this kind of they would not to be defeated. It was almost like all the sanctions and all the restrictions. It was just a game for them to play with. So they, you know, to 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 be one step ahead of the authorities, the smuggling in of, of, of alcohol or the or the bringing in the Western goods or whatever. It was all just, you know, a challenge almost. And they sort of relished it really. And and that was, I found that quite appealing. That the subversiveness. Well, it so flies in the face of what the the average picture is of them, because you picture almost like these people who are very stoic and reserved, and and really what you're describing is people who will do anything to get what what they what they want, and they want the same things everybody else. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Pretty pretty much. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I I did find. Um, I mean, the reserve thing. I I definitely wouldn't describe the Iranians as, as reserved. It, it's it's the real sort of country of extroverts is what I found and it, and I think it would help I mean I'm quite extroverted and it would help if you are an extrovert if you go there because you're sort of inundated with people coming up and talking to you and uh, and it's never intimidating you know it's not intimidating they're just interested and people just be yelling out of the car window that you welcome to Iran do you need any help in Iran you know come back to meet my mother <laughs> you know and wherever you go you'll be endless conversations and really the most fascinating conversations I've ever had anywhere really because their life stories are so fascinating because they live under this incredibly strict regime where like everything is controlled from you know who you hang out with to the music you listen to to the books you can read to the films you can see you know uh, and your behavior is, is controlled and you're watched all the time but there's still this immense, immense sort of love of life and, and this sort of joie de vivre that comes over. And I, I found that fascinating that they could live under this oppressive re- regime, but still have this enormous sort of in- enthusiasm for life. So it's sort of like I mentioned the veneer. It's sort of like they, they you know, I guess um, in one way they appear a certain way, but really, you know, behind the scenes, it's not like that at all. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, you're quite right. What what I really discovered was that the, the Iranians have two lives, you know, a private life and a public life. And so what you see when you see the women walking around with the long black um, shadows on or the headscarves and uh, and all of that sort of stuff, it, it, that's that's all for out, you know, out in public. Uh, and then once you get inside the ha- the homes, you know, everything changes. And then like the headscarves are thrown on the floor, the, the short doors come off. You know, everyone's just, uh, you know, watching, you know, Western TV on cable, you know, Western TV channels on satellite, which is as well as illegal because you're not even allowed to have satellite TV. I mean, everyone does, but they do occasionally kind of raid people's homes and take the satellite dishes off. And, you know, and then the, then the sneaky bottle of vodka will come out from under the, you know. <laughs> under the table and 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 so it's it's yeah it's this totally two separate lives and i think they've got quite adept at living like that really so what happens when the government raids their house and takes their stuff do they get thrown in jail or is it just a matter if they go out and buy a new tv (laughs) yeah um no people do get in prison and in fact Almost every single adult I spoke to at length, I mean, you know, it would, uh, proper conversations, had a story of having been arrested or imprisoned or intimidated or at least picked up by the police for something. 
and it's almost it's almost become normalized you know there's this um, branch of the police there's many layers of the police and the revolutionary guard and then there's this thing called the besiege who are like a militia which are kind of essentially sort of young kids given guns and the powers to harass people for their hair and makeup or whatever and and then there's this other um, element of the police called the morality police uh, and they drive around in vans and will literally kind of haul women off the street and say you know you're wearing too much lipstick or you know you, whatever it might be you know your hair's showing too much uh, and so everybody has had a run-in with them and it's just normal you know and sometimes it'll result in a night in prison uh, sometimes it'll just result in being taken in for a few hours, told to wipe your makeup off, you know, recite a few verses of the Quran and sign a letter saying that you'll never do anything so un-Islamic again and you're sent home. <laughs> uh, and it's all sort of par for the course. I mean, that's at the lower end, but lo- but I did hear much more disturbing stories of people, you know, who had been locked up for weeks and a guy told me about his colleague who just disappeared, you know, for weeks on end and came back kind of utterly broken and wouldn't talk about it and... You know, and you assume that there's been some sort of torture and beatings. And, and so, you know, that stuff is, is quite common. And, and people that are targeted are sort of, you know, anyone that speaks out, like journalists or human rights lawyers or bloggers or, you know, even people that post videos on YouTube and that sort of thing. So, you know, you risk your life if you, well, you certainly risk your freedom uh, if you speak out against the government but you know incredibly there are a lot of Iranians who still do and it's all power to them really. Didn't that make you paranoid I mean with your your story on your visa you know I don't know I don't think it'd be that hard to figure out that you may be there to write a story or you might be wanting to write a book you already had a book out didn't Mm -hmm. that make you paranoid? Yeah, I was paranoid about that because, you know, obviously I didn't put it down as my profession <laughs> writer, you know, so I make out I was, I don't know, something, <laughs> you know, innocent. But yeah, I mean, the the visa lady did tell me, oh, um, you know, they do Google applicants sometimes. And, and I do wonder now if I try to apply again, if they obviously now I've got a book out about Iran, which isn't particularly uh, complimentary about the government if I'm on some sort of list, you know. I mean, oh, yeah. when, when sure, I read this, I, I thought well she's uh, not going back. <laughs> like, yeah, there's I, no like, way. That is a risk that, yeah, that is a risk that I, I've taken. And obviously, all the people I've quoted in the book that I met and told me all their stories, you know, I've had to change their names and not just their names, their identities to the extent of, you know, where they live or what they do for a job or everything, you know. I was very, very careful about that. And yeah, I mean, who knows? You know, I probably won't be allowed back in. And that's a great source of sadness to me. And I did think a lot about it when I was writing the book. And I thought, you know, I hate the idea that I could never go back to Iran, but I have to write the truth. You know, it's really important that I didn't sugarcoat it or, you know, try and protect the Iranian government at all. So I, I had to, I had to had to do the right thing, really. But yeah, I know it's a shame. So yeah, I was paranoid a bit. And then, you know, but... I wasn't sure quite how connected up all the information was, but yeah, I guess they could have got me if they wanted to, you know. But again, I just sort of um, assumed the best. <laughs> and um, I was lucky, I guess. Where does the motorcycle fit into all of this? Is, I mean, just a mode of transportation, yeah. is there a point of taking the bike or is it, I mean, where does it fit? Um I think um, it does fit in because, I mean, that's obviously how I've done most of my journeys and I've travelled in many other ways, obviously. Um, but I still believe the motorcycle to be the the best form of transport to see a country, to see the world, essentially. And that's because you can... My thought about that is that you can, you can make up good miles so you can cover a lot of ground 
more so than say if you're riding a bicycle or something but you're also totally exposed to your environment and to the people and for me that's the most important thing is to be able to connect with with the people um so it's a great icebreaker to traveling by motorcycle people always want to come up and talk to you which is which is great because it's then you've sort of got access into that into the the real world of that country you've got autonomy so you can get away uh which was very useful to me as you um happened i had an incident where i got attacked in a petrol station in iran and I was very, very grateful to have that electric start button <laughs> with off. Why did you get attacked? Um, I mean, it's hard to explain, really. Uh, I was in a very remote part of Iran, and it turned out I was in a kind of Breaking Bad type of zone. I didn't realise at the time, but there's a big, massive mess problem in Iran. Um, I mean, there's quite a lot. There's a big drug problem generally because there's a lot of cheap heroin and uh, but meth has, has become a big problem recently. And I was in an area where there were a lot of meth labs and people on meth. And there was a guy working at the petrol station who, as soon as I arrived, I knew that he was weird or on something or something was amiss. And he was kind of shouting and raving. And 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 I was uh, alone with him in the petrol station. He was pumping the gas. And, and he sort of jumped on me and attacked me. And I was sitting on my bike. And um, and I sort of fought him off. And, and as I said, rode off, you know, as fast as I could and by god you know I was so thankful that I was riding a motorcycle because if that had happened on a bus you know I'd been stuck next to the guy all all day you know so so I don't really know I've never quite got to the bottom of that because he didn't you know he wasn't speaking to me in English and I I couldn't understand what he was saying and I I think he was probably on on drugs and I explained it to someone the next day and she said that's probably the case because that is a big problem in that area so, yeah, obviously that was a, you know, pretty unpleasant experience. And it's the only time anything like that has actually really ever happened to me on any of my journeys. So, but I just put it down to bad luck, really. Um, but again, you know, for me, that affirmed my choice of the motorcycle. And also it just, it, it just makes you engage with your environment, you know, the, the weather and the smells and the sounds and the, you're right in it. And, and, and I think obviously you can get that in a bicycle or walking, but you don't get the you can't make that up the miles with those forms of transport and you don't get the buzz of you know obviously the buzz that we all know because we're listening to this show that <laughs> of, of riding you know so um so those are my main reasons why i think the bike is you know the greatest form of transport for for traveling definitely what bike were you riding um i was riding a yamaha ttr 250 uh, so this is the same model, not exact, not the same bike, but the same model that I rode through Africa. Um, and it had been so reliable and amazing on the Africa trip that I just went out and bought another one, basically. Um, and it was brilliant. I didn't have a single problem with it. So um, and it was it was perfect. I, I got a big tank on it, 22 litre tank, which gives me a range of about 350 miles. Um, and uh, yeah, a few mods, but I lowered it a bit because it's very tall and I'm quite short. Um, but other than that, it was stock and it just, it just starts and runs and, and that's it. It's brilliant. And was the idea that you were going to camp or were you planning on staying in hotels? A bit of both really. I always take my camping gear cause it gives me that knowledge that whatever happens, I can pitch my tent somewhere and I'll be right. okay. But, um, I, I did, I only camped to like maybe one or two nights because I, I ended up with so much hospitality because I should say that when I went, I didn't know anyone in Iran, but I had one contact, like literally one bit of paper with a phone number on it, which was a friend of a friend of a friend. So it really was like someone I know in London said, oh, I know someone who knows somebody who lives, you know, it was like that. So 
I had this guy's number and him and his wife lived in Tehran and they, they're British Iranians. So they've spent their time in, in England and in, in Iran and they were just fantastic. And they really became very good friends and they really looked after me. And once you've got one friend in Iran, you've got a hundred, you know, cause they're all on the phone to their, you know, relatives and friends and putting you up with their, everybody throughout the country. So I ended up being hosted enormous amount, which is great because, you you know, you really get to talk to people and see the real life, really, of Iranians. Uh, and then also I got, you know, picked up by complete strangers, which is, again, another phenomenon. of. I mean, that happens all over the world, but particularly in Iran, it was absolutely normal to sort of just be plucked off the street by random strangers. But what you found that was part of their culture, isn't it? They do it. It's not just because you're a woman traveling on the motorcycle. I'm sure that's part of it, but it's just because you're a foreigner. I, I think so. Yeah. I mean, there is a great culture of, of hospitality in the Middle East generally. And I think Iranians are famous for that, particularly in Iran, more, more so than anywhere, maybe. Um, and people always talk about it. Anyone who's been to Iran will tell you how, how the hospitality is quite overwhelming even, you know. I mean, just the feeding program. <laughs> I mean, I put on like five pounds in a, in a month because people just wouldn't stop giving me food. And, and you know, because it's rude to refuse. And even if you're completely stuffed, you sort of still have to keep cramming it in. So, yeah, the hospitality and the, the taking people into their home, that's totally, totally normal. And, and it was a real... Really, really charming and lovely. And and what was so nice is it's completely unconditional. You know, in Africa, I've had incidents where people have sort of invited me in or given me hospitality. And then it's sort of, it gets a bit awkward because they can't ask for money or they want something or they want a contact in England or, you know, uh, it's slightly, the balance is slightly skewed. But in Iran, it was absolutely genuine hospitality and generosity with, with nothing it wanted it in return. And that really had a big impact on me. And I thought, you know, what would happen if an Iranian came to England and rode around on a bike and, you know, would they get that sort of treatment? And sadly, I fear the answer is, is <laughs> Well, no. that would be for a rude surprise because they're going to think that they're, oh, somebody will just help me or somebody will put me up in their home. And, exactly. and then find, well, yes, what's going so on? <laughs> Why is yeah, this not happening? talking to me. Yeah. You know? we, don't, look, we don't talk to people in, in London. I can't <laughs> remember the last time that happened to me where I pulled into a gas station or something. Somebody said to me, do you want to come and stay at my house? And I mean, I can only imagine my reaction if they said that too here. Well, like that, you start getting a bit worried. Oh, you know? yeah. But I mean, to be fair, I have had that in other countries. And, you know, I, I should say that I, I actually have had that in, in uh, your great country in Canada. Oh, so that's there you nice go. to hear. But, <laughs> but I'm sure it was a UK plate you had on your bike, though. Yeah, well, that uh, probably helps. Yeah, yeah. definitely. I think, you know, the foreign foreign bike is, is, is sort of a source of interest wherever you go. And, uh, and that's one of the great things about the motorcycle is that, you know, it, it does attract attention, which is not always welcome, but generally it, it, it's it's good attention. But, you know, I did sometimes feel like I was a traveling circus, you know, everywhere I went, people would sort of surround me and stare and point and ask me questions and, you know. Which is usually fine, but sometimes you think, oh my God, I'd just like to hide in a hotel for the night. <laughs> <laughs> Can you explain this cultural thing? And I think it's pronounced Taruf. Oh, Tawaf, yeah. Tawaf. Yes, this is a kind of, well, it sort of goes on from what we were just talking about. Tawaf is a formalized politeness, I suppose, formalized hospitality where people will offer you something and then you're sort of meant to refuse it and then they offer it again then you refuse it again and then they offer it again then you have to accept it so this happens not just to foreigners it happens between Iranians and often it it will be as between you know not necessarily family members but maybe like in a work situation 
And in a way, it's similar to in England, we might like open the door and say, you go. And then they'll say, no, you first, you first. And you stand at the door saying you first for about a minute, you know. <laughs> so it's that kind of idea, sort of unnecessary and excessive politeness. But in Iran, it's, it's it, you know, it's got this name and it actually is as a sort of formal ritual, really. And if you don't understand it, you might think that, you know, shopkeepers are, are, are saying, oh, don't worry about paying me for that food or whatever. But actually, you're meant to go through this whole rigmarole. Well, and, well, I've heard people, I remember uh, somebody telling me that, that they went there and they couldn't pay for anything because everybody kept saying, no, no, it's, it's okay. Yeah. It's it's my pleasure. <laughs> well, you see, it, exactly. Sometimes they're genuine and it's really hard to know as a foreigner when it's real and when it isn't. And I had this uh, in, you know, with my, these friends that I stayed with, they kept pay, paying, paying for my dinner. And I tried to pay one time secretly. And then the, the, the restaurant, the waiter came rushing over shouting, your, your guest is trying to pay. And everyone was absolutely <laughs> horrified at this idea. <laughs> so, so I wasn't like, I was sort of like, is this tow off or is this actually you just being generous or should I, you know, and it was quite hard to fathom it all actually. So uh, I think if you just refuse and insist enough times, you finally get to the bottom of it. <laughs> you ended up going back. You, you went, the, the book is mainly about your one trip, but you ended up going back a few more times. Yeah, the the book essentially is the story of my first trip there, which was in 2013 in in the autumn, or the fall, as I should say. Um, then, I, I I mean, obviously, as you can tell, I, I just fell in love with it, and I I found it utterly fascinating. And I realised that if I was going to write a good book about this place, I needed to kind of go back and soak it up a bit more, and do a bit more research, and and, and sort of dig a bit deeper. So I left my bike over winter in Tehran and I went back the following spring 2014 and then I spent um, more time riding around then and then at that time was exactly when they changed the rules for British people the visa rules so it happened while I was there so at the end of that trip I thought well I'd better get me and my bike out of here really because it's going to get difficult from now on Uh, and so I went back and started writing the book and then I returned again in 2016 but not with the bike this time because it was too complicated to get the bike in so I went with my husband Austin and we hired a car actually which was (laughs) quite a novel experience in itself (laughs) (laughs) you get a Quran in the glove box (laughs) (laughs) so um and so I did a sort of Another trip that that time, which was more just testing the water, the temperature, really, because I'd I'd been there a really momentous time, which was 2013, when the nuclear deal was just going through, and and uh, the the Iranian president Rouhani had ju- had spoken to Obama on the phone, and this was like a colossal big deal in Iran because nobody, you know, Amer- an Amer- Iranian president has not spoken to an American president since 1979, you know, when the revolution happened, or 1980 or whatever, so this was like immense and everyone was out on the street, you know, waving the newspapers and pointing at them and talking about it. And, and people were coming up to me in the street and, and saying, you know, our countries are going to be friends. And it was really moving actually. And especially the young people were so excited about it. They sort of felt that this great world was going to open up to them finally. And then sure enough, the nuclear deal did go through two years later and they, you know, they were partying in the streets and that's like definitely illegal. You know, people were dancing and, yeah, and and the authorities turned a blind eye for one day and let everybody, you know, celebrate and uh, and then I and I went back in 2016 to sort of see how this had sort of uh, panned out and actually, you know, it's quite sad in a way because the, the the much longed for, you know, economic 
improvements haven't really happened and people thought that I think people thought that there was going to be huge changes straight away and they'd all get access to the internet and make loads of money and be, you know and, and trade would open up again and all the sanctions would be lifted and everyone would be able to do everything but that hasn't happened and the West is still very reluctant to do deals with Iran and do trade and it's happening very very slowly but there was a little bit of um, frustration I would say when I went in 2016 so we'll see. It's really interesting the the um, the fact that um, our governments are so different in in most cases than the people of the country. I, I think it's incredible in the, in the book. Certainly, I, I think like I said before that the chasm b- between the government and the real people really comes through in this book that you've written here. The book is called Revolutionary Ride, and, and Lois, great to have you on. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me back. It's great to talk to you. And I've been speaking with Lois Price from her home in the UK. You can find out more about Lois by visiting her website, www.loisontheloose.com. And her new book, Revolutionary Ride, is available through Amazon. And I think probably most places that books are sold. Those links, of course, are in our show notes. IMS products started back in 1976. They've been producing race quality hard parts since then. They have a full line of pegs for adventure motorcycles now. Now, you don't want to be fooled into thinking that all pegs are created equally. For instance, a friend of mine had a set of inexpensive pegs that seemed the part. They looked bigger than stock. They appeared to be tough. But one huge flaw they had is that when the company designed them, they added width in all directions, front, back, and out to the sides. And when you do that, it changes the angle of your foot when shifting up. So... Bigger is better in most cases for foot pegs, but a properly designed foot peg is what you want because it's one of your main contact points in the bike. IMS pegs are cast certified 17-4 stainless steel, certified heat treating. They're made in the USA. And yes, they are an excellent design for your bike. It's what I'm running right now on my motorcycle and I'm having a great time with them. www.imsproducts.com. And of course, anytime you deal with them, make sure you mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Rosie Gabriel is a Canadian. She's a photographer and a motorcyclist. She's passionate about embracing life to the fullest and, and sort of letting life unfold as she goes along. She doesn't believe in over planning or that the people of the world can be judged by what she reads in the paper or hears in the local cafe. Rosie likes to go there and find out herself. She's done two trips to Oman, and she even lived there for a while. And what she experienced while in Oman, and really in all the places that she's been, is probably not what you'd expect. And here, Rosie sits in Africa, sort of enjoying herself, even though her trip has kind of fallen apart. Uh, My name is Rosie Gabriel. I'm from Vancouver, Canada, or just outside of Vancouver Delta, I guess. Um, And I am, uh, I guess, uh, by trade, I'm a photographer, but uh, now I'm an adventure, an adventure rider, (laughs) a traveler. 
Rosie, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you so much. Where are you right now? I'm currently in Vilinculo, uh, Mozambique. So what are you doing there? I'm taking a small little relaxing vacation after my um, attempt to cross Africa and my my bike broke down um, many times and to the point where my visa ran out in South Africa. So, you know, South Africa is the most difficult country in the entire world to renew your visa. They really like to make it difficult. So I had to actually fly out of the country to renew it. And I thought, what the heck, you know, if I'm paying for a flight, I might as well make a vacation out of it. So I off to the beach I went. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, let's back up. Why did you go to Africa? What, what's the deal? Well, originally, um, it was when I was in Oman, I was doing a tour over there on a KLR 650. And after Oman, I was planning to do India and Nepal. And I had it all set, flights were booked and everything. And uh, a friend of mine had mentioned that he rode his bike from Zanzibar to Cape Town. And the bike was still currently in Cape Town and needed to be brought back to Zanzibar. But unfortunately, he wasn't able to do it. So then a little light bulb came on in my head and I just thought, oh my gosh, oh, I, I could bring your bike back for you. And and that's how that all started. And um, basically, I just booked a trip over to um, to South Africa and away I went. <laughs> so you just grabbed a bunch of camping gear, popped over to Africa, jump on this bike, and the bike turns out to be a total piece of junk. Pretty much. Yeah. I was told by both the owner and, um, and obviously I had mechanics look at it top to bottom, have it serviced. And everyone told me, you know, this bike is in, you know, the bike is fine. It's in perfect condition. And, and to be fair, the, the owner did ride it from Zanzibar to Cape town with no problems, not even a puncture, (laughs) not even a puncture. And the minute I got hold of this thing, the whole thing just fell apart. So now it's left you stranded and you're going to have to find a different bike? Yeah, pretty much. Um, I, you know, at the very beginning, I spent six weeks in and out of uh, the mechanics in Cape Town and it left me stranded in the middle of the mountains there. The whole bike just just went flat dead uh, off in the middle of nowhere. And I thought at that point, I thought, oh, no, you know, I, I should probably find a new bike. And I thought, you know what? No, I'm going to I'm going to give this bike another chance. Like, let's do it. But throughout the entire course of like I did um 4900 kilometers across across South Africa and that bike broke down oh my gosh every every other day it was breaking and so by the time I got to Johannesburg I had to make the um the right decision that you know it's not safe for me to take this bike so I'm currently trying to figure out because um, over here with paperwork and can I buy a bike over here and what are my options? There's just, uh, a lot of things to consider at the moment. Yeah. That's really interesting, isn't it? Because to, to buy a bike, you're going to need an address. You got to get insurance and, it's, mm-hmm. and then you got to deal with the bike afterwards because I guess if you, could you bring it back to Canada easily? I don't know. I didn't, I haven't looked that far into it, but you know, it's, it almost seems, it seems so much of a headache and that's why I took this opportunity to begin with because like I know for one to, to ship a bike over from Canada, it's expensive. There's paperwork, everything. So I just wanted, you know, yeah, time. It was so easy. I had a bike already here, but, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a bit of, um, a headache now to figure out what to do. (laughs) 
Well, let's let's back up. I'm curious about how you got into the whole motorcycle and travel thing. You're you're 31 years old. You're from Canada, from British Columbia, mm-hmm. and um, yes. how did you get into motorcycles? I was 19, and I had, um, you know, it was my first solo trip. I went to Southeast Asia, as most people do, you know, after they graduate. And my whole idea, this is when I first started getting into photography. And, you know, I wanted the rich cultural experience and go into villages and meet the locals and, and everything. And when I went over there, you know, you take a bus from point A to point B. I think the first bus I took was to Chiang Mai, so like 10 hours. And you miss everything in between. And, you know, you're on a bus with other tourists and then you go to hostels with other tourists. And it just, you know, it wasn't this this idea of travel that I had in mind. And so when I was in the north, I had rented a bike and I did a small little weekend trip and it was at that point, and this is the first time I'd ever been on two wheels in my life. Was, so it was you rented there. a bike without knowing how to ride one? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> it was a small hmm. bike. It was like a little 125 semi-automatic, you know, little little thing. But I was absolutely hooked. And I thought, you know what? Like, okay, th- this is how I have to do my trip. Like, no questions asked. So when I went back to Chiang Mai, I was actually volunteering um, with an orphanage at the time. So the director of the orphanage helped me suss out a bike and um, I bought the bike and I continued 12,000 kilometers. I did all of Thailand, Laos, Vietnam and Cambodia over six months by myself. With the, the photography, is that something you picked up or did you go to school for that? I got really lucky with that, actually. Um, I was an artist originally. I painted portraits, and I wanted original things to paint. And um, before I did the Southeast Asia tour, I did a few volunteer trips to Guatemala and Romania. And so while I was over there, um, you know, I always used to copy Steve McCurry's work in National Geographic, and I wanted original stuff to to copy. So I picked up a camera and then when I went to Guatemala, I started taking portraits and the, the concept of lighting and composition and everything just came so naturally to me that when I went back home, I started practicing on the kids that I nannied for. And one thing kind of led to another. And eventually I started charging. And when I moved to the Middle East, I opened my own photography business and, uh, became very successful over there, but all, all self-taught. Well, you just mentioned that you went to the Middle East and started a a, Mm -hmm. a company doing photography. How does that come about? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, um, well, uh, after my Southeast Asia tour, um, I needed money and I wanted to travel. And a friend of mine said, hey, you're a really good singer. So I thought, oh, and they said, you should do something with it. And And I never thought about it. I mean, I'd always sang, but I never thought to do anything with it. And so I auditioned for a band who had a contract out in Oman, which was a country I'd never heard of up until that point. And um, yeah, within two weeks, I had to learn 60 songs. And next thing I know, I'm being shipped off to a country I never knew existed. And I'm performing in front of hundreds of people at a five-star hotel six nights a week. You know, as you do. You do do jump in with both (laughs) feet. (laughs) So then you you went from there into photography. Well, no. Um, From the singing, I did that for two years. I went to Dubai after and sang there as well. 
And I moved back to Oman and I became a rock climbing instructor. And I did that for two years first. Okay. So that was something you already knew? No, I had met somebody. He was the uh, lead climbing instructor in Oman. And then um, I became certified and uh, worked for their company for two years. And it's no problem to go and work in Oman? Um, it's changed over the years. Now it's very difficult with visas. Um, I got lucky over the years. Um, I knew people. <laughs> um, so, yeah. And where does photography come in? Uh, well, it came to a point where I was um, going to leave Oman. Well, I had the option um, to either leave Oman and stay. And at that point, I thought, you know what, maybe because I'd done a few jobs, photography jobs over there. But I thought, you know what, maybe let's let's try this. And so I had done my first local Omani wedding and then from there, my name just exploded. And within a few months, I was working for the royal family. And um, I mean, I was doing three weddings a week at one point. And I just, uh, I developed such a name and reputation for myself that now I, I just, I go out uh, whenever they need a wedding done or whatever. Is, is motorcycling a big part of you or is it more uh, transportation? I mean, do you have that, that love of motorcycles that some people develop or is it sort of just that mode of transportation where it gets you into the places that you want to see? No, it's, it's absolutely mind, body and soul, uh, a passion of mine. Um, my father, he rode and, um, you know, it's, it's in my blood. Uh, unfortunately he's, he passed away when I was two, um, on a motorcycle actually. So when I bought my first bike, my mom was not so impressed, <laughs> mm. but, um, you know, I just, it runs through my, my veins, my blood. I love it. Uh, the freedom I feel when I'm on the open road, that unknown, the adventure and, um, you know, it's so, so liberating and it's, it's such a way of life for me. What's it like traveling solo, you know, especially as a female? And, and I mean, there's, there's all kinds of women out there traveling alone. But I, I think that, mm-hmm. I, I guess for a lot of us, we picture that it's, it's got to be more difficult. Is it? Uh, absolutely not. And I, and I would say it's even more easier because when people see a, a single female, I mean, first, there's the shock factor. They're like, okay, wait wait, where's your friends? Where's your husband? And it's like, no, no, I'm alone. They're like, no, (laughs) you know, but they just want to take care of you. And so anything you need at any point, you know, anytime my bike is broken down or I need help in any way, um, people are there to help me. And, um, it's not, for me, I mean, it's different for everybody. For me, I've, I've never had a natural fear to things. So I don't actually, I'm not afraid. Um, but no, it's not more difficult. I mean, it is maybe more difficult when it comes to picking up my bike because it's really heavy. <laughs> but no, I, and I'd say it's, it's almost better. And, and I think because, because I'm a female, people are less afraid to approach me. I'm not as intimidating. And, you know, I, I'm invited into homes with um, women and children and all this. And I, I don't know if it would be the same with men. But they're less intimidated to come approach me. So, I mean, I get invited into people's homes and fed food and just 
just have the most amazing cultural experience because of it. And that goes right along with what you've said as well about about traveling to these places where people tell you not to. It's 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 almost completely wrong information, isn't it? In, in a lot of cases, like mm. I, I know some of these places are dangerous and they've got some governments have some some horrible things about them. But but your experience, a real traveler out there in the real world, that's not the case. Absolutely not. It's the exact opposite. And I mean, every country has its place. I mean, I would never suggest anyone to walk down Hastings Street at three in the morning. You know, <laughs> there's there's certain areas, you know, to avoid and you just don't put yourself out there. But um, you're referring to Vancouver. No. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Right. <laughs> so how many crickets do you think are around you right now? <laughs> oh, good. are they that loud? Can you hear them? I can hear crickets. I, I just thought if the listeners hearing crickets, I might want to call attention to that and point out, yes, there actually are crickets here. Stop looking around the room. <laughs> Stop checking yeah, your vehicle. Yeah, you're not hearing things. You're <laughs> not hearing things. <laughs> We were talking about, um, you know, things being great about travel, but you've had some difficult things as well, obviously. I mean, everyone does. One I'm thinking of in particular, for instance, a problem you had with your tent and your keys. <laughs> oh, I do that probably every day to some extent. Yeah, just, you know, I you, you purposely put your keys somewhere so you know you're not going to forget them, and then you end up packing up your entire bag and everything and then you realize your keys are still in the tent and the sun is coming and filming up. it and filming it yeah. yeah and that's that's the best you know it's it's so great i had a really funny um the trip i did in oman previous to that um it was on a royal enfield and i had this idea that i w- i didn't need a tent and i would do my entire trip in a hammock and sleep in a hammock everywhere and so I went off in it with my hammock and I had a sleeping bag and I'm going off into the mountains. I'm about 300 kilometers out and like deep into the mountains. And um, <laughs> I'm looking around and, and the sun's starting to go down slowly and, and it just kind of dawns on me that there's no trees. <laughs> I need trees to put up my hammock. <laughs> Crap. <laughs> like... Oh no, you know, so, and I'm looking and there's like a little, uh, soccer post. I was like, Oh, maybe I could use that, but it was way too flimsy. And then, Oh gosh. And so I had no choice, but to sleep on the ground and it was this rocky, really uncomfortable. And earlier that evening I broke my, uh, my centers to my kickstand. So I kind of like jimmied my bike into the ground and propped it up with rocks. And then I had to sleep on these rocks for the night. And I thought, okay, well, tomorrow's another day. And, um, so there were so many mosquitoes. We had just had a lot of rain in Oman and the mosquitoes, like the sound of it was just penetrating. It was so loud. So I had to put my blanket over my head and I had this little breathing hole and the mosquitoes were so loud. And then suddenly at about 1130 at night, I just hear this screaming and like this, this big, animal and I had no idea what it was but it sounded loud and it sounded big and the only thing I had was my camera and my camera's pretty heavy and I thought okay well if it comes running towards me I'll just smack it in the head <laughs> and I could hear it and it was charging towards me and it was coming and it was making louder and louder sounds and so I got my flashlight out and then I made a loud sound back at it and and I found out it was a donkey <laughs> a harmless donkey, but I was so scared. So after that, after the mosquitoes and the donkey, and then I had to deal with this kickstand that was broken. I said, you know what? 
screw it. I'm just, I'm going to pack up everything and I'm just going to drive back to the city. So I got back to the city around like three o'clock in the morning. I somehow navigated myself off this mountain in the pitch black. Oh, I see. You went back that night. I was thinking the next day. You went back right then. No, because there was no way. Like the like, donkey, the donkey did scared it. the yeah the donkey did it, and the mosquitoes. There was no way I was going to get any sleep. And on the rocks, I thought, forget it. You know what? Go back to the city, get my kickstand fixed, and buy a tent. So I buy one of those like pull and pop tents. Like you, you pull it and it pops up like really simple, right? How, how hard can it be? And so again, off I go, I've got my tent and I go down the coast and I thought, you know what, tonight I'm going to spend the night on the beach. And so I drive up onto the beach and I'm really nice and close to the water because I wanted a nice view and I'm going to put up my tent and I'm pulling it and I'm pulling it and suddenly it snaps. The pole snaps. I thought, are you kidding me? So then I was like, okay, no more tent. So then I had a tripod, of course. So I take the tripod and I kind of post it in the middle of this droopy fabric and then put myself under this tent and kind of rig it up so it's half coming off my bike and half uh, put up with this tripod. And uh, and then I go to sleep. And uh, at about 12 o'clock, I hear, and I was like, oh, crap. I did not even think about the tide. I look outside my tent and two inches from my tent, the water line is there. <laughs> I was like, oh no. And everything is rigged up. And I thought, oh, I'm going to have to move my tent. Luckily I had uh, Wi-Fi, and I was able to look up the tide times and it was like peak high tide. So I thought, okay, maybe I'll get lucky and it will, it will go back. And then sure enough, it did. And uh, the next morning I woke up and I pack up all my stuff and I go to drive off. And uh, Royal Enfields don't do so well in sand. And there was no way I was getting out, like absolutely none. And of course the sun is coming up and it's getting hotter and hotter. It was uh, mid-spring at that point. So the days are about 42 Celsius, um, 42, 45 Anyways, I managed, luckily, I managed to flag down a pickup truck and it had a Bedouin couple, like a rural, local, 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 like Bedouin. Uh, a Bedouin is like a, a desert mountain person. And uh, both man and wife helped me yank my bike out of the sand um, and and that was it. And both of them were heaving. And I've, the best part is I've got it all on video. It was mm. so great. Yeah. When they help you, are they doing it, like, are they sort of surprised at the fact that you're asking them and it's sort of an unusual thing for them? Or is it just sort of, that's the way things happen. Somebody breaks down, people stop and help. Um, yeah, pretty much. They're, they they didn't question if I, if I was asking for help at all and did not hesitate. And in fact, I tried giving them, you know, some money after that or, or some sort of a thank you. And they said they were absolutely not, you know, and they are more than welcome. And every time I did have a fall in Oman, um, the people would, you know, immediately come help me. And then, oh, you want water, you want food, you know, they would make sure I was okay. And then it was like, okay, now you're coming back to our home and we're going to feed you. <laughs> you know, and is that because you're a woman or is that just because you're a traveler? It's, um, it might be because, uh, no, I think, 
in the Middle East, they have um, this way to them. It's it's kind of everybody does it. They have coffee boiling 24 hours. They have dates available and they're nomads. So, um, you know, if, if anyone is passing by, it doesn't matter who you are, you're invited into their home. And that's one thing that I love and that I think when I moved back to Vancouver, there's such a disconnect. Yes, this will be the word that I will use to describe people in the West. There is a real disconnect because people are so in their own little worlds. You know, people don't smile at people anymore. People don't ask how another person's day is. In the Middle East, their first, when they greet someone, they say, Salam Alaikum, peace be with you. And they say, Kif Halik, Kif. And they go on and they say, How are you? How is your family? How is your health? And they there's this whole, like, it takes about a good five minutes for them to go through this thing. And it's kind of, it is a, it's a ritual for them, but it's it, every single person, stranger, family, friend, doesn't matter. Everybody is connected. And it's such a beautiful thing. And I think when I went to Vancouver, you know, I really like, it was so apparent this, this disconnect of our world today. And, um, yeah, sorry, I went off on a tangent back to the question. Yeah, I don't think it mattered if I was a traveler or a female or anyone. They 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 want to help other people. No judgments. When, mm. when you're saying that you, they spend you know five or ten minutes going through the ritual, is it sort of like us just saying hi, how are you, and you don't really you're not really interested? I think in a lot of times in North America, <laughs> you know, you say how are you, but don't tell me your problems. It's the last thing I want to hear. Is it the same sort of thing, or do they actually would they yeah. show interest if you said you know I'm having this problem? Um. No, I think they genuinely care over there. I mean, there is a bit of a sing song to it when when they say it because there there's a long list of things. Um, but it it matters, you know, if if the person usually if they say I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, then they're fine. But if there's an issue, then they're very concerned. Um, yeah, they 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 care. You must have had other um, adventures, so to speak, while, while you've been traveling around. Do any come to mind? Um, yes, uh, this last summer, uh, I did a trip on my 1983 Honda Shadow. I had been wanting to go down to San Francisco for years. And finally this summer I said, you know what, no more, no more procrastination. Like I want to do this. I'm going to do it. And, uh, except I, I did it with my little dog, Winston. He's a Morkie, a Yorkshire Terrier Maltese. And I have a little front carrier. So it's like this little backpack that I wear on my front. And we did 5,000 kilometers, uh, from Vancouver. And we went down to San Francisco via the, uh, route 101 and we did Yosemite and then Lake Tahoe and then back. So did your Honda run the whole time? No problem. Um, I had one small issue. I was, it was just past, uh, what is it called there? Um, Cannon Beach. And all of a sudden my fuel line, it just, it just started pissing out fuel and I could, and I could smell it when I was driving and I pulled over and I thought, Oh gosh, what am I going to do? I mean, I am not mechanically inclined. (laughs) I am now more after this trip, but before I, I wasn't very mechanically inclined and I thought, okay, well the next town is about 45 minutes away or I could go back to Cannon Beach. And I knew Cannon Beach was a very small town and I, and I didn't know if they would have a mechanic there and I didn't know if my bike would even make it because it was just 
pouring out uh, gas. And so I managed to get back to the Cannon Beach and there was a mechanic, but his shop was closed, but it was a car mechanic. And I thought, oh no, you know, maybe he won't be able to figure this out. And so I pulled into a campsite and for that trip, I mainly wild camped. I, I didn't, I didn't stay in any campsites, but for this particular night, I thought, cause it was already dark. I thought, you know what, I'll just, I'll go to this campsite. And sure enough, I pull in and there was one spot left and the campsite next to me, it was full of a bunch of adventure riders. They were from the Czech Republic and they had come up from Chicago and I was like, hey, boys, <laughs> do any of you know any bike mechanics or like anything about mechanics? And sure enough, one was an actual bike mechanic. So turns out I had a missing clamp. And so we rigged something up and uh, it was fine. But this is something I never would have been able to figure out on my own. And, uh, and a prime example of why on my travels, I never worry. I mean, because that's our big fear, isn't it? When we go do anything, especially with travel, it's our big fear of what if it's all those what ifs and you can run through them till the cows come home. But mm -hmm. if you leave yourself open to it, isn't that it? I mean, that's what I hear in you. You leave yourself open to it and you just sort of think, okay, well, you know, what's going to happen? And, and it happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I really believe in the law of attraction. Like what you put out in this world is what you're going to get back. So if you put out negativity and anger and resentment and judgment, then you're, you're not going to have nice experiences. Um, but if you put out positivity and love and, you know, you treat everyone with respect and, and whatever, then, you know, generally that's what you get back. And I just sort of leave it up to the universe and, and whatnot that, you know, if if something bad or or something's going to happen it's going to happen it's it's inevitable you know and so i just um and the more you worry the 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 less you know your experiences so there's no point in sitting and worrying and having fear in you all the time because then you're not going to actually enjoy yourself so just you know kind of leave it up to the universe if something happens it happens and just trust that whatever experiences do happen, that it is happening for a reason. And it can be interpretation of your events too, isn't it? Because you were, you were picked up by, um, by government officials. I think you said they were equivalent to the CIA at one point. Where, where was that? Was that in Oman? <laughs> that was in Oman. Yeah. We were, we were filming, I wanted to do like a women's rights thing. And so I wanted to ride around. Well, well uh, we first had of all, hang on, sorry, let me interrupt there, but isn't that risky doing yeah. that there? Uh, no, not so much. I had asked beforehand because I definitely didn't want to offend anyone or, you know, I said, you know, by me riding around in an abaya in a burqa, is that offensive? Is that illegal in any way? And I was told no. Um, it was just the matter of wrong place, wrong time. And, uh, I was with my partner at the time and we were going to film this video and I was dressed, you know, head to toe in the traditional, um, the niqab, which is the face mask, and then the abaya, which is the full black dress, head to toe riding an army green bike paired with a backpack. And we were riding by the palace and we didn't know, but the Iranian president was in town. And so security was heightened. And so basically... 
they pulled us over and they're like, no, no, you need to come with us. And we said, well, we didn't do anything wrong. And I said, well, no, you know, just, just come down, just come down to the office and we'll just have a chat. And you, you can't tell an officer no. So we followed them and went in and we were separated and they took all of our camera equipment, our phones, everything. And I said, well, you know, can I talk to my embassy? Can I talk to anyone? So no, no, we're just going to chat to you. And I am horrible under pressure. Even if I cross from Vancouver to Bellingham over the border and they say, where are you from? I'm like, Canada. Like, I don't like any sort of pressure. that sets the alarms off. This one's lying. She's (laughs) hiding something. (laughs) Yeah. So I don't do well under pressure at all. And I, I'm a human lie detector test. Like I cannot lie. You, you see right through me. And obviously we hadn't been doing anything wrong. Um, but these guys, like they weren't your ordinary cops. They were, you know, educated overseas. They were the equivalent of the CIA and they were drilling me every moment of my life for the past, you know, at that time, eight years that I had been there and they kept us in there for 12 hours, like nonstop, just drilling us. And, you know, as I said, uh, I, I, we didn't do anything illegal, but my work permit wasn't exactly legal at the time. (laughs) So I was really scared that they were going to find out I was working there illegally, deport me with my dog stuck in my house, you know, just, oh, I was panicking. So they finally, at the end of the day, about nine o'clock at night, they, they finally let us reunite. And I thought as well, because um, I wasn't sure Alex was my partner at the time and I wasn't sure what Alex was saying and the fact he was staying in my house and, and that's an issue over there. You know, if you're not married, you can't be living man and man and woman together. So, oh no, they're going to, you know, they're going to find out that and what is he telling them? And so we finally get reunited and we're just like, Hey, what did you say? What did they say? What's going on? Just like this panic and um, they finally fed us like they we didn't have food all day. They finally fed us. And I said, you know what? I'm going to get us out of here because at that point they were going to keep us in overnight. Um, they, we didn't do anything wrong, but they, you know, they kind of wanted to to prove a point, make a an example or whatever. So they were going to keep us in. Um, sorry, the backstory to that was, um, the entire time I had been telling them that I was in a lot of pain because just days before I was in the hospital with kidney stones. So they gave us a bunch of curry and rice and whatnot. So I just start scarfing my face, just like eating as much as I could. And then I downed like a liter of water and I say, excuse me, can I go to the bathroom? And as I'm walking towards the bathroom, their head office is just on the way and the door's wide open and all the officers are in there. And as I'm passing, I kind of like fall into the wall and make myself projectile vomit everywhere. Like, like it was an art. It was beautiful. <laughs> I wish that was on camera. It just... And they come rushing out. They're like, oh, my gosh, are you okay? Oh, no, we'll call an ambulance. Oh, no, you really are sick. I was like, yeah, I'm sick. I'm sick. I need my medicine. <laughs> and so um, I said, look, I don't need it. I don't need the ambulance. I just need to go home and get my medicine. So they're like, okay, okay, okay. And within, like, five minutes, you know, we got all of our stuff back. And uh, and on we went. <laughs> <laughs> 
So do you think you were well? Do you think you were in any real danger there? Was was there real danger other than look other than digging and finding more information that you didn't want them to find? But you weren't any in any physical danger, were you? No, no, no. There was no danger. It was just. I mean, you don't really want to spend a night in the jail over there. The the not not dangerous part, but they're not they're not nice jails. Mm. You know, um, they're not these fancy government funded things. Well, it'd be um, easy to dislike the culture at that point, wouldn't it? I mean, that that's the type of experience you'll hear somebody run into and say, I'll never go back to that country again. But that clearly didn't yeah. happen with you. No, no, no. I mean, at the end of it, they were laughing and taking selfies with us on the bike. You know, it was, it was fine. Mm. Um, it wasn't a, a horrible experience and something definitely we can talk about and laugh at now. But, uh, <laughs> but the same thing could have happened anywhere else. You could have been in the States. It could have happened there. It could have happened in Canada. I mean, it's just one of those oh, things. Yeah. But, but that's what I'm saying. It's so easy to attach that to a culture and say, well, that's why it happened. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Absolutely not. I mean, we kind of put ourselves in that situation. Um, it, that can happen anywhere. I mean, gosh, if you <laughs> if you were in the States and in Abaya doing that, you bet you'd have more than jail time. <laughs> What, what, give, give me some example or, or maybe a, a story about like the, that epitomizes what you love about motorcycle travel. Well, in Oman, I had been living there for about nine years and I used to work for the adventure company and I was out in the mountains, you know, every day. And I had driven that country many times by car. But when you're on a bike it is a completely different experience both internally and externally I mean people you're no longer separate you're no longer in a box separate from the outside world you're actually you are your surroundings and um it's just really neat to experience and people pay attention and there it's it's not a common thing they see so that you know they want to see you they want to meet you they're intrigued um, and then you just get to experience the country so much better. I mean, you, yeah, everything from the smells to the sounds to, to everything. And, um, yeah, I just, I, I experienced the country so much different than I had ever in the nine years that I was living there than when I did on a bike. How about um, some top tips from what you've learned on the road, what you've learned traveling from different countries to different countries about travel in general? Do you have some top tips for someone who hasn't done what you've done and is considering it? Uh, Don't be afraid. Uh, Definitely don't listen to people. If the person hasn't actually been there, don't listen to them Mm, (laughs) because they don't know. Um, They really have no idea. And, And even... So like being in South Africa, uh, the most negative things I heard were from South Africans themselves. Um, so just, you know, experience it for yourself. Don't, don't listen to outside influences. Um, and be open. Um, just be open to meet people. And if there's, you know, when I was in Oman and, uh, I remember one day I was just so tired and, uh, these people approached me. I thought, oh, no, I just want to go in my tent. I want to sleep. And I thought, you know what? This is why I'm here. I'm, I'm here to meet people. So, And they invited me back to their home. 
and I had the most amazing night with them. And so just be open to these sort of things and put yourself out there and be vulnerable and um, just be open to trying new things and um, be respectful to others and uh, try and learn as much, you know, as the local language as you can wherever you go. I find that not only a huge benefit, but also um, it helps you connect more with the people and they, they love it. I mean, they, they have so much respect for you that you've actually gone, even if you can't pronounce it correctly, you know, you're trying, you're trying to learn about them and that makes them feel important. And that's a very, a very important thing and special thing when you travel, you know, um, don't get upset when things don't go as planned because things are never going to go as planned and you can plan all you want. And you know what? Chances are most likely it's not going to turn out how you wanted it to. So just be easygoing and open to whatever's going to happen. I never plan my route. I I have a general idea of where I'm going to go, but in a day I kind of just think, you know, where I'm going to end up because I don't want, there are people and, and I can see the, why people do this. You know, they say, okay, I'm going to ride 300 kilometers today and I'm going to sleep at this point and whatever. But then that doesn't leave you open to other things. So just, just always be open to things that come up. But that's a bit of a stress reliever, isn't it? Because if you know exactly. you have to make it to such and such town or whatever, oh, that's what your goal. Huge stress. Yeah. Yeah. It's a huge stress. Yeah. Rosie, great to talk to you. Thank you very much. Yeah, you too, Jim. Thank you so much. And that was Rosie Gabrielle from Vancouver, Canada, while she sits in Africa. And if you'd like to see some of the videos, we have a link to her YouTube channel in our show notes. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using their unique strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. And that has gained them a top reputation for tough, reliable gear. www.greenchiliadv.com That's www.greenchiliadv.com Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. And the Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll fill your flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. It's made in the USA, and it comes with a lifetime warranty. www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. The MotoBreeze chain oiler is powered by wind pressure that automatically adjusts for speed. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers oil to your chain with a felt pad that's mounted on your swing arm, which eliminates the problems of exposed nozzles near your sprockets. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets and forget about the messy spray oil. www.motobreeze.com. That's two eyes in there. www.motobreeze.com. Well, the 
that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and of course to you, the listener. Thank you very much. Hey, if you like what we're doing here and you'd like to support the show, we do have it built on a model of advertising and donations. We need the both to make it work, really. Um, we can't survive with just one and not the other. So if you'd like to drop by the website, www.adventureriderradio.com, click on the donate button. There's a bunch of different options there. Uh, we will send out a sticker for $10 or more. Anything $50 or more is going to get you a mention on our Raw show. That's our other show. Um, and, of course, we really appreciate the help. Hey, if you don't know about the Raw show, now that I've just mentioned it, it makes me think that I should tell you about it. It is a separate show. You need to subscribe separately. I mean, both of them are free. You can listen to them free, no problem at all. Just go to the website, www.adventureriderradio.com, and click on the Raw button, and then you can see all about the Raw show. It's roundtable discussions. Completely different show than this. We have... Uh, Shirley Hardy Ricks, Brian Ricks, Graham Field, um, Sam Manicom, and Grant Johnson and myself on once a month to discuss some things. And it's a rather unorthodox show, I think, to say the least. Anyway, have a listen. Tell me what you think. My name's Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. See you next week. Oh, wait, 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 wait. One, one more thing just before I go here. Hey, if you haven't already, drop by our Facebook page and click on the like button. We'd love to have you like our Facebook page. My name's Lyndon Poskett, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 